0: The rising inequality and growing political instability that we see today are the direct result of decades of bad economic theory. It's
1: time to build our economy from the bottom up and from the middle out, not the top down.
0: Middle out economics is the answer.
1: Because Wall Street didn't build this country. Great middle class built this country.
0: The more the middle class thrives, the better the economy is for everyone, even rich people like me.
2: This is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a podcast about how to build the economy from the middle out. Welcome to the show.
1: So I got to admit, Nick, that when you first uh, asked me to come work for you, I was a little wary of... uh, whether you'd be uh, just another narcissistic, arrogant billionaire. And, you know, I don't want to compliment you too much, but I was pleasantly surprised. You turned out to be incredibly well-read, well-informed, curious, uh, flexible, and just a much better thought partner than I could have hoped for. And that is why today... I am so excited to finally talk about something that you know nothing about, and that <laughs> is the misery of flying commercial.
0: Yeah, there you go. H- happily or sadly, I don't I don't have to do much of that anymore. Uh, no, you don't. And and no, uh, what, I do occasionally what, though.
1: Yeah, in first class, uh, what international? Which is, yes. Uh, yes, still a surface. <laughs> eye. Well, uh, when was the last time you flew uh, Economy on a domestic flight?
0: Recently, I uh, I flew <gasps> Economy uh, on a domestic flight just a couple of months, ago, a couple oh of three God. weeks ago. What, I did, private jet I did it in the shop? By, <laughs> no, no, no. I just I just had to get from one place to another quite quickly and did. Okay. And it was not that miserable.
1: Well, you know, here's the thing. I've been in your plane and, uh, it's Which is not miserable. It's not miserable, but for the most part, uh, for people who want to know what it's like on a private jet, if you think like there's bikinied flight attendants serving a champagne, it doesn't work that way. Uh, it is a tube. In the sky, the seats are very comfortable. There's plenty of room. Nick is a gracious host who actually loves to serve like airplane food to us himself. Takes you know <laughs> the plastic wrap off the the crudité tray and and puts it out there. Uh, Nick, famously, not much of a drinker, so it, it's not a boozy flight. Uh, but there are a nice soft drink concession. For me, the best part about it is I fl- I drive five minutes to the north end of Boeing Field and park my car and get on a plane and don't have to deal with all the airport crap. But I make this point because flying, really, the physical experience of flying really hasn't changed much in the past 60 years. I- you know, if you were flying in the 70s before deregulation— the- technology hasn't changed. The technology. I mean, yes. I mean, the avionics have gotten more sophisticated. Right. The physical hardware has not changed all that much. You are basically strapped in a seat in a tube in the sky, in a pressurized tube in the sky. And you might think that over 60 years, the experience would get better. You're not flying any faster Because really, you're up against that speed of sound. Once you go supersonic, it's a whole other thing. So you're flying at sub supersonic speeds in this giant tube. And yet, the whole experience is so much worse now than it was when I was in my 20s, when I was a kid before deregulation at all. It's like they go out of their way to make it miserable uh, at every moment, starting in the airport. And a lot of it is. You know the post 9 11 tsa security theater crap that makes you have to get to the airport uh two hours before your flight leaves uh just in case there's some ty- kind of delay at security and uh you know taking off your shoes and your belt and all the scanning and waiting in line forget about the airport stuff it's how little leg room there is. It's when I fly, I, I, I resent the fact my father was one, and I resent the fact that I'm not even 5'10". No son should be shorter than their father. Uh, this explains maybe a little bit about me. Uh, but whenever I'm flying, man, I am so happy. I'm not like six one, six two. 6'2". It must be miserable for these people because it's tough yeah. for somebody my size. The whole... Uh, where they make you fight for uh, overhead luggage space now because they started charging yes. you to check your bag. So now everybody wants to carry on, and that means everybody wants to board first so that you don't get your uh, bag uh, gate checked and then have to wait for uh, your luggage forever uh, at the carousels. The, the way they nickel and dime you over everything, you know, whether you're going to get a little crappy food on the flight or um, Wi-Fi, which you think should be free everywhere because it costs them nothing, basically, to have them. There's a Wi-Fi on the flight. They're feeding you movies and stuff. Why not let you uh, have a little bit of uh, texting or Internet when you're on the flight? But worst is the, the fact that you pay what is still a significant amount of money to get to a certain place. At a certain time, and yet the airline has absolutely no responsibility whatsoever to meet that contract. You show up at the gate, uh, and uh, you know, 15 minutes before it's supposed to close, and you can miss your lose your your flight, and that's your fault for not being there early. But if they just don't, there's a a storm in Boston, and you're trying to fly from uh, Florida to Seattle. And uh, because of that, their system is delayed and you don't make your connecting flight. Well, and you're left in Chicago, well, that's on you. It's not their problem. They'll get you there eventually, maybe two or three days out, they'll find a spot for you, but that's not your problem, unless you wanna go and buy yourself another ticket on another airline. And this happens all the time. And so you can tell I've had some of these experiences, Nick. It is a whole different system. Than it was when I was a kid, where if your flight was delayed for whatever reason, the airline would put you on the next flight out, regardless of the airline. You could take your, your, back then, your Pan Am ticket and use it on TWA. It was a time, Nick, I don't know if you know this, but the airlines, they used to treat you like customers instead of those things they store in that space above the luggage compartment.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I vaguely remember. It used to be better. It used to be better, but today we're not just going to hear you <laughs> rant about how shitty uh, yeah. the service is and the experiences. Today, we get to talk to one of our favorite people in the whole wide world, who's a law professor and director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator uh, for Political Economy and Regulation. And um, Ganesh is just, you know, one of the smartest, uh, most creative people we deal with in our policy world. He was a senior advisor to Elizabeth Warren done so many things, wrote one of our favorite books, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. And he has a new book out that should be music to your ears or music to your (laughs) eyes or whatever it is, Goldie. Uh, I know you've read it. Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It, which details sort of the arc of the development of the airline industry in the United States, the way in which it grew, the role the government played, the long history of regulation and then deregulation and 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 where we went wrong. You know, it's such an interesting story. And I I think the story of the airlines actually is extensible to other parts of our economy too, which is why this conversation is so relevant. So with that, why don't we we chat with uh, Ganesh and hear his views on why flying is miserable.
2: I'm Ganesh Sitaraman. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt Law School, director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator. And my new book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It.
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: Now, this is something Nick is not not very familiar with, the idea that flying is miserable because he flies way above the rest of us. But I got to tell you, Ganesh, this has been a pet peeve of mine forever, because I am slightly old enough to remember what it was like flying before. We went on a few family vacations in the 70s before deregulation, and it was totally different than flying today. And that's not even take into account all the TSA misery post
0: 9-11. So as quickly as you can, kind of give us the lay of the land, Ganesh. Like, wh- yeah, the, the, the thesis in, of what the happened? book. Why, yeah. Yeah, why is flying miserable now?
2: Well, well, (laughs) let me do do two parts to that. Let let me do first a a little descriptive account for anyone who hasn't been paying attention to the news in the last handful of years or has taken a flight, which is flying is miserable. And it's miserable for for individuals, for passengers who are on these planes where, you know, we go to the airport and, you know, like you said, after you get through TSA even – Often you're in a giant hub. There's like thousands of flights going out. It's, you know, maybe all run by one airplane or or maybe there's a couple of others. Um, You get on these planes which have smaller and smaller seats. You've also paid all these extra fees to, you know, check your bag or get a meal uh, on the flight. Maybe you're lucky and the person in front of you doesn't put their seat back. uh, You know, got to help you if you're traveling with, you know, a stroller or if you have a wheelchair. Um, It's a real hassle. And if you zoom out from the the passenger experience, which has gotten frustrating, there are just a lot of problems in the industry. You know, we had a period of massive, massive profits for the industry uh, in the 2010s. um, And then COVID happened. People didn't want to fly and the airlines came rushing to Congress asking for taxpayer support. Same thing happened, by the way, 20 years earlier. We had lots of profits in the airline industry in the 90s. 9-11 happened, big demand shock, and the airlines came running to Congress asking for bailouts. So we have a problem on the kind of boom and bust cycles in the industry. We have a real concentration problem in the industry too. You know, we've got four big airlines, and those four big airlines now have a larger market share than the biggest four airlines had under regulation in the 70s. Now, part of the pitch of deregulation was we were gonna have more competition. We actually have less competition now under mm-hmm. the so-called unregulated, you know, co- competitive uh, market system. And and that's not just at the level of the biggest airlines overall, you really see it in airports. You know, there are some airports now, you know, take Detroit for example, Delta has, you know, 70-80% of Detroit. During regulation, they only had 30% of Detroit Airport. So there was a lot more competition at the airport level instead of having a small number of these fortress hubs. And then all of this is a problem for you only if your city actually has air service. But 74 cities have lost service since COVID from at least one big carrier. And a number of cities have now lost all major carrier service. So if you live in Dubuque, Iowa, if you live in Toledo, Ohio, there's no more big carriers coming to your town and offering flights. And that's a huge change from the past. And so if you think about this from the perspective of, Economic growth and opportunity in different parts of the country. If you think about the resilience of our airline system, if you think about competition and what that means for prices, and then of course you think about you know the cost cutting on the part of the airlines when you think about safety concerns that we've seen in in recent uh, in recent times, but but also the broader things like smaller seats. You know the whole process of flying, the industry itself is in I think a, a really problematic state. This is not a sector that's that's covering itself in glory at the moment. And all of this, you know, in my mind, goes back really to deregulation uh, in the 1970s. And the reason why is because, you know, in the pre- deregulation period, from the 30s to the 70s, Congress decided that we wanted a stable, reliable airline system. And what they recognized is that airlines are not a business like any others. They're not the same as like starting a restaurant or manufacturing coffee mugs. It's not going to be, Totally competitive. Well, there'll be hundreds of players, and that's because, you know, there are network effects. There's economies of scale. There are barriers to entry, um, and all of these things. Basically, you know, I mean, we can we can get into the economic details, but you know, they're all fancy ways of just saying bigger is better. And the more scale you have, the bigger you are, you're going to do better. And so, in an unregulated environment, what that means is you either end up with monopolies and oligopolies, or you have so much competition that there are price wars airlines are going bankrupt, they need subsidies to stay alive. Um, and if you let them go bankrupt, you then just have massive consolidation uh, and then you go back to having monopolies or oligopolies and and you know all the downsides that come with that. And so that was obvious in the 1930s to people that this was a different kind of business. And so they set up a regulatory system that was designed to navigate all of these challenges, ensure access around the whole country, you know, have uh, some amount of regulated competition, you know, not too much, that airlines would need subsidies, not too little, that there would be monopolies. And they did this pretty successfully for 40 years. And in that period, more people were flying, prices were regularly going down and consistently. And there were big innovations, like the move from propeller planes to jets. And then in the 70s, you know, a number of folks uh, said, this is a terrible thing. And we should actually just have pure market competition. We should let the airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, charge whatever they want and everything will be better. We'll have dozens, maybe even hundreds of competitors in the airline industry. Prices will be cheaper. There'll be no downsides to service quality or geographic access or safety or labor or anything else. And that was just a failed pitch. You know, they were wrong. And uh, we can look at our system today and see that on a whole bunch of those metrics that they predicted, they just weren't right about it. And, and I think that's why we are where we are, is that big shift which was really a policy change. Um, It wasn't something natural. It wasn't God-given on how to set up an airline system. It was a bunch of policy choices. And, you know, they really messed up this industry for a lot of us.
0: Yeah, interesting. It's worth just noting, though, that the deregulation push coincided. When I read your book, it was really interesting. In sort of tripart crises in the industry at that moment, too, right? You had kind of a demand problem, and then you had the doubling or tripling of the fuel costs and they were all losing money and stuff. There was a a moment there that created kind of the energy around deregulation. Isn't that true? Yeah, exactly.
2: I think there was sort of a perfect storm that opened up the opportunity to dismantle this whole system that had worked pretty well for 40 years and, yeah. and, and what that was, was I'd say a, a combination of a few factors. On the economic side, there was in the late 60s and early 70s, I mean, really in the early 70s, a major economic shock. You had the oil crisis, you had rising inflation. And, and what this meant was not only higher costs for airlines, uh, but also lower demand, uh, fewer people flying in that period. At the same time, in the late 60s, the airlines had just bought whole new fleets of these wide-bodied jets, which was a big capital investment. And under- This regu- was the
0: beginning of 747s, right? It, yeah, right. these
2: huge jets, which are, which are you know, can be really efficient, especially for doing long haul flights. And so this was a great technological advancement. And, you know, the air- airlines said like, let's, let's invest in these in this new technology, it's great. And the challenge though is, under the way that regulation worked, The way airlines would make money is they would be able to cover their capital expenditures and their operating expenses, and then they would get a a revenue amount on top of that. They would get some benefits on top of that for being in the industry. And that was sort of the regulated profits of the sector. Of course, regulating profits, regulating rates meant that competition was really all about service, which is why as Goldie started, you you had all these great experiences flying because they were competing on service to make it a good experience for you when you were flying. That's how they're going to win your business.
1: Oh man, Ganesh, that seven forty-seven from Philadelphia to San Juan, the you know, we weren't flying first class, but the entire upstairs was a lounge. You could go up that spiral staircase and you sit at a table and there's a bar up there and they give you a deck of cards, and as a kid you get like these, you know, model planes and pins and stuff.
2: It was really a thing to fly. It was totally different. And and that service competition was because of regulated prices. But when they had this big expense of all these jets and were facing lower volumes and were facing higher costs you know they went to the regulators and said well we need to cover our costs and this is just standard stuff in this in this time period and so the regulator said sure you know we we got to we're going to have to change the pricing a little bit to address that so that was going on at the same time um, and so you see lower demand higher prices because of these because of these changes and in investments um in the, in the in the rate regulation at the time And that's combined then with this kind of intellectual environment in which the Chicago school economists on the right had been pushing for many years to basically say that we should run all these businesses the same and we should think primarily about marginal cost pricing as the way to do that. We shouldn't have regulation even in sectors that might look like they're oligopolies. uh, Let's let the market just be the market. And you had people on the left like Ralph Nader saying that these systems of government regulation are really forms of industry capturing government in order to harm consumers and to help the industry, and so the kind of left wing Naderite supported in the, you know, in the political process by Ted Kennedy and Stephen Breyer, who then wasn't a Supreme Court justice but was a staffer to Kennedy, and. The kind of right wing economist uh, energy plus the kind of general Republican view of you know, being against big government, those things merged with the economic context and created this opportunity for what well, was really a radical transformation of a huge sector of the economy um, all at once.
1: Now, let me do the typical pushback because I have had this. This is, like I said, it's been a pet peeve of mine for, for years how terrible flying is. And that it doesn't need to be this way, and that it's mostly a consequence of deregulation. And I get the pushback, oh, but flying is so much cheaper today than it was back then. If it wasn't for deregulation, only the rich would be able to fly.
2: Yeah, this is one of this is one of these like persistent conventional wisdom myths that I think really, really needs to be blown up. And <laughs> and I and I do it in the book, but but I'll, I'll for everyone listening here's here's the version that I'll tell you why that's not right. And and there's a bunch of reasons. So the first one, which is the most obvious, is you know people will say, well, prices went down after deregulation. And often they'll even show you a chart that starts in like 1978 when the Deregulation Act was passed or 1980, and it'll show prices going down. That's true. Average prices have gone down since 1978, 1980, since, since deregulation. If you pull that chart back and go all the way to 1950, it turns out prices were going down the whole time before that too, and at the same rate that they were going down just about afterwards. So there's no big discontinuity where prices were higher before by some crazy amount, and then it sharply declines at deregulation. It's actually a consistent decline for the entire you know period of the history of, of airlines after World War II. So that's the first point. It's not obvious deregulation did this. The second thing is that that's average prices, and right. in part, when we talk about average prices, we're a little bit comparing apples and oranges here because, you know, Goldie, like when you were flying, you know, uh, in, in traveling in the lounge with your playing cards and probably getting like, if you were you weren't old enough uh, at the time, but if you were, probably getting free drinks and all other kinds of things. Um, well,
1: free soft drinks, but yeah, no, not all not old free enough, alcoholic father, drinks. Yeah, he, my father loved the free exactly, drinks. Yeah. Yeah. let Yeah. So, tell you. so <laughs> you know.
2: You're actually getting a different product than today where you have to pay for your drinks. Uh, Obviously, no one's giving you playing cards. Um, You're checking your bag. You're going to pay extra for that. Like All of those things you're paying extra for now. So all those additional fees are not built into that structure. So so we're comparing a little bit different things. So that's the second problem. A third problem is that one thing that's happened is we've seen the real reshaping of fees and – sorry, of prices overall. So – in the late era of regulation, the way they regulated prices is they basically required the airlines to charge equal fares for equal miles. So the price of a flight was tied to how far you were flying, which kind of makes sense. And they wanted equal fares for equal miles so that if you were flying between a small town and a big city, you know maybe lower volume, that would still be affordable and it would be the same price as flying between two really big cities. And why that's important is because we are a gigantic country. And if you want to have economic mm-hmm. growth and opportunity in places that aren't just you know New York, Washington, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, you need to actually have people be able to get to other cities and to be able to go there and for businesses to be there and have their customers fly or their suppliers get there. And you need airlines and you need transportation infrastructure for that to work. And so if you want that kind of ability for there to be Growth, communication, commerce, tourism, and everything in a lot of different places. You need to have flight access, and so the equal fares for equal miles ensured that you had affordable flights, even in places that might have a little bit lower volume and were a little bit smaller.
1: So, in a sense, the system was was subsidizing the smaller cities. You were you were paying a little more on those on those more um, uh, on those busier routes in order to keep airfare affordable. On the less busy routes.
2: That's right, and and in in technical terms, this is called a cross subsidy, and you know you could call it a cross subsidy. You could also just call it uniform pricing, is another way to think about it. And where you know on the back end, the stuff gets worked out, but it's not about you don't set the price related to the cost of providing the specific service. And and this is important because another way to think about it is you don't have to conceive of the service as a specific point-to-point flight, but you conceive of the service as national air network and service to Mm -hmm. lots of different places. And so if you think about the post office, this is where this idea comes from. You pay it the same price on a stamp to send a letter from New York to Washington or San Francisco to Seattle that you pay to send that stamped letter from New York to Minneapolis, or New York to Alaska, or New York to Birmingham, Alabama, or Seattle to any of those places. And the reason was that the founders of the country wanted to make sure that in our gigantic country there would be access to communication everywhere. And so the post office always yeah. had this principle built into it. And that same idea applies in airlines, and, and the theory is what we're not buying is a specific flight or a specific you know, postal you know, stamp, like sending a mail. What you want to provide as a service as a country is an infrastructure that is accessible in a lot of different places. And so you got to think about it as a system, not just as a particular point-to-point service. And so what happened after deregulation, though, is when you deregulate that system and let airlines fly wherever they want, they're going to drop all the places that are smaller, they're going to cut back service in those places, and they're going to consolidate operations in the places that are the highest volume the biggest cities, and, and that's what happened. And that reshaped prices in a couple ways. First, it meant that if you live in these really small places, you might pay a lot more for flying because there's a monopoly and there's low volume in those places if you have access at all. And then the second thing it did is it pushed airlines to create these big hubs where they would have a lot more efficiency in their operations if everyone has to fly through, say, Atlanta, if you're on Delta, or Dallas if you're an American. And And when that happens, They drop service from midsize hubs, they drop service from smaller places potentially. And and as that happens and they consolidate, now you've got these fortress hubs where one airline has 70, 80% of flights in that area. And they're effectively monopolies there too. So prices go up if you live or are going as a destination or departure point from one of these big places. And so what you see now is in some places, prices are much higher even if in other places where there's competition, they're lower, and here's the real kicker, even the proponents of deregulation, 10 years later, admitted that this is what was happening, that there was actually a reshaping of prices and prices had not gone down across the board. So, you know, you can the smoking gun, you don't have to take my word for it, Alfred Kahn himself, the father of deregulation, 10 years later, admitted that prices had gone up in some places and had gone down in others. And so, I think it's a real myth that, uh, that is perpetuated just for too long. You know, I think
1: a nice comparison on this idea that average prices have gone down, that's true, but that's like working Nick's uh, uh, average income into uh, whether average incomes are going up or down uh, for somebody like me. If you're flying between Los Angeles and New York, my God, are prices cheaper than they used to be. If you're flying between, say, Cincinnati and pick some other mid-sized city, It's a lot more expensive if you can get a flight at all. And of course, I picked Cincinnati for a reason, uh, because that's a city that really suffered under this.
2: That's right. I mean, Cincinnati, you know, used to be a big hub and is no longer a hub. And that's that's a real problem. You know, you think, again, as I mentioned about economic growth and opportunity and, you know, who wants to start a business in a in a city that doesn't have with an no air, airport. With no, that's yeah, right. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I Nick, mean, you, you, you wonder wouldn't, why you wouldn't people start a, You wouldn't start a company in a place that no. has
1: no, no, no. no air service. Or keep a company there because I think it was Cincinnati famously that was the headquarters for uh, United Fruit, now the Chiquita company, whatever they call themselves. And they moved their headquarters because they couldn't fly
2: people in and out on direct flights anymore. Yeah, and you've seen, you see that. And you also see things like you want to host your national convention somewhere you know maybe there's a great yeah. convention center but like if there's no flights to your city from all over the country no, forget you actually it. don't want to have your convention there cuz everybody's got to connect once mm-hmm. or twice and that's a real right. hassle so that's devastating to economies if if that happens and you know that has secondary and tertiary effects cuz when you don't have the businesses you don't have managers you don't have all the restaurants that people go to you don't have all the shops right like it, it's a huge you know, it's a huge hit on economies when when they lose these kind of basic infrastructures.
0: You know, one of the great challenges in the country right now, of course, is the is the agglomeration effect that we're seeing in this in the super cities, right? That basically all of the economic action is happening in fewer and fewer places. And it, you know, th- there, there's a bunch of things that make that so, but I guess I'd never thought through the effect that the airline consolidation and deregulation had had on it too.
2: You know, the story you hear from economists is it's all just the benefits of co-locating, and you know, it's cheaper, there's more talented people, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, we forget that, and it's not just airlines, it's, it's regulation in a bunch of other ways too. When you think back to the kind of progressive era and New Deal regulatory system that then got dismantled you know, in the late 20th century, airline deregulation was part of that story. Railroad, dereg- railroad deregulation is also part of that story. You know, there's uh, I recently read a paper um, that was making the point that railroad regulation helped expand economic access in a bunch of places because what the railroads would do is they would charge cheaper prices for longer hauls between big cities than they would to the shorter hauls where the same railroad was going to stop along the way, and so they were charging farmers more. For you know a subset of the of the rail line and that made it harder to live in those places. And when they regulated and prevented that, that helped. Um, so there's railroad deregulation, there's airlines, you can think about telecommunications, you know we, we have uh, yep. regulations in that area. you know today the biggest uh, I think example of that is the absence of a kind of provision of service in rural places on broadband. And that's another version of you know, how do we provide these basic infrastructural goods? Are we going to do it by just subsidizing, you know, the biggest uh, telecom companies, or or do we have a system that says, like, you know, you get access to this whole area, but you have to provide service, not just to the big city, but also to the rural places around it. Yeah.
1: And, and we famously did that with the old uh, AT&T monopoly, where we city dwellers were paying this uh, fee to provide rural telephones to help subsidize rural telephone service so that everybody had access and
2: electricity another example and and you know across the board in a bunch of areas where we have geographically spatial networks the common theme is it is more expensive to provide service to some areas than others and we yes. have to decide as a country are we giving up on those places and they're just going to be too expensive to live there or do we actually care about the whole country and want people to be able to live in different places right. and the policy of the united states really from the founding through the 1970s you know 200 years was we want to encourage people to be able to live and have infrastructure access to basic goods and needs in lots of different places and in the 70s people turned against that and i think we've been seeing the effects in geographic inequality and economic outcomes and health outcomes and all other kinds of things too, in part, not completely, but yeah, in part look, we're, because we're doing of these regulatory to changes. are
0: yeah. hospitals We're doing it to hospitals now. Like we're letting private equity do to the healthcare system what deregulation did to the airline system.
2: You, you roll up all the healthcare providers, get rid of all the hospitals yeah. in rural areas, they're all in cities now, and that's a huge problem because where do you go to yeah. get care if you live in those places? You have to drive right. in an ambulance a few hours or get airlifted out. I mean, it's a challenge all around and it's a fundamental problem, but it's a solvable problem. And I think that's the real point is, this is a policy choice to decide how we want to govern ourselves and how we wanna shape economic opportunity in a way that works for a broad group of people or only people who live in a few places.
1: That's a good segue because your book is titled, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Let's get to the how to fix it part.
2: Yeah re-regulation well you know so the way that i think about this is that we have moved into a different place now than we were you know 1978 like i i'm not sure you can just say let's just repass the 1938 civil aeronautics act and it'll it'll operate just fine right now i think we have to learn from both systems that we've had i think we need to try to find ways to do things that are new and fresh um, but that learn from the fact that this isn't a purely competitive industry, that a whole bunch of parts of it have not been working. Um And so to me, there's really three principles. and and I'll give you one idea in each, though I talk about others in the book and in a new white paper uh, that I've just published uh, also. And so the first principle is no more flyover country. I don't think we should have a system where we don't have access to a lot of different uh, places in the country. We should have service in a lot of places. and and so the idea there, is um, what I call a draft pick system. And you can imagine this as like an NFL draft or NBA draft, whatever your favorite uh, sports team, uh, sports franchise, or system is. And you imagine uh, the big airlines as the teams and the cities as the players. And uh, you'd have a category of cities that don't get service, that are a little small or lower volume. Um, They'd all be on the list. And, you know, the teams, the the airlines would would pick uh, one by one until all the cities are used up and they'd have to serve those cities with uh, affordable rates, um, with a certain number of flights per day and per week. And that would be the deal. And part of the deal is, you know, you don't just get to start an airline, like it's a a privilege that the public gives you to be able to fly over our common airspace. And with privileges come obligations. And so you have a duty to also engage in some public service. And that's going to mean means serving those places at affordable rates, and you'll make the cost work. You know, Maybe you wanna change the prices on this route, maybe you wanna pay your CEO a little bit less, maybe do fewer stock buybacks. Like You'll figure out what you're gonna do on your end, but you have to serve these places at, at these affordable rates. Second principle, no more bailouts, no more bankruptcies. You know, We should have a stable, reliable system even when there are crises. And the easy idea here is let's start just by having a crisis management plan where the airlines actually have to put together pen and paper to say, if there's a big demand shock like COVID or uh, like 9-11 and we are going to have low demand for six months for a year, what is our plan? How are we gonna do that so that after that crisis, we don't have tens of thousands of cancellations like we saw in 2022? So we don't have major staff shortages because we fired everybody or gave everybody voluntary retirements (laughs) like we saw
0: also in the last few years. We're not going to have to get a $50 billion bailout.
2: And, and that's the last from part, the public. right? And you're not going to come yeah. running to us after having made all this yeah. money and, you know, giving it away to your CEOs or in stock buybacks. You know, what's your plan for how you're going to do that? And show us that plan, like have that ready, because I think that's an important part of this. They should be thinking about that.
0: Yeah, the airline bailout, if I could just interject, that airline bailout is one of the greatest scandals in American history. I mean, I, I just, every time I think about it, my blood boils. They just gave all that money away to shareholders. And then when times got tough, it came to the public. They didn't, they didn't keep they didn't that
1: money on their in balance reserve. sheets. It's just
0: unbelievable. Yeah, which,
1: which Ganesh raises an idea. I mean, a lot of people criticize the airlines now for essentially being banks what with all the credit cards they issue and the frequent flyer miles they sell and so forth. Well, if they're going to operate like banks, why don't we regulate them like banks and require them to keep adequate
2: capital reserves? And, and that's right. You know, maybe that's part of these these plans is it's it's a rainy day fund. You could call it apital, yes. <laughs> adequate capital reserves or a rainy day fund. Um, but, but that's part of the story. What are they actually doing in these places? Because, you know, they are too important to fail as enterprises – for us, right? we actually need airlines in the country. It's important to our commerce. It's important to, to yeah. how we function. Um, and so, of course, if there's a crisis, Congress is going to bail them out. Like obviously, that's what's going to happen because of how important they are. But we know that, and so let's let's actually do some public policy to prevent that from happening uh, instead of the system we have. Um, and then the last part is, you know, I think we need to to look hard at fixing our. You know, fair structure. And that means, you know, fair and transparent prices for people. And I think there's a lot of reforms in this area. So, you know, there's a bunch of abusive practices in these airline point systems and, and programs uh, that, that we should tackle. I think we've gone way too far in these junk fees and unbundling all the different elements of flying. Um, we should have some minimum standards of service, which, you know, include things like minimum seat, st- seat sizes, you know, inclusive fares that, that include, you know, very basic things in them. And there can be different tiers and they can go higher than that. But, you know, we can't just constantly have uh, this race to the bottom where, you know, the seats get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until, you know, we're all sitting on each other's laps in order to fly. Like that's that's not a workable system for us. So I think we need to address that as well.
1: So you've been pitching these ideas what type of response are you getting from uh, legislators, policymakers?
2: Well, I think there's been really two, maybe three sets of reactions that are hopefully encouraging, I think. Uh, there's a small number of people who are just so dug in and invested into the kind of mythology of deregulation and religion of uh, of the market working in this area that they're just unwilling to see you know, the the problems that we face and admit that policy could actually do something to fix it. And so, you know, put, put that aside, there's always going to be some of those folks. What's been really striking to me are the other two groups, which is there's a lot of people who I think, you know, Goldie will raise the point that you did, but didn't prices go down? Weren't there all these benefits? And they they've heard that stuff before. It's kind of in the air, but they've never really thought about it. They've never really looked into it and when you talk to them about the problems they say wow yeah these are real problems and and they recognize that there's a connection here and and what's gone wrong in their lived experience and i think that's really important because for change it'll be getting those people to to move and then of course there's the people who are totally on board with it and and very excited but but to me what's exciting about this moment is the facts are on the right side <laughs> you know nobody can look out at the airline industry as it is now, and the experience we've had in the last handful of years, and say, "My God, this is an amazingly, you know, working system. This is the best it could possibly be." No one say, no one thinks that. Um, you'd have to be crazy. I've never heard anyone say, "Oh my God, I loved how small my seat was and the extra fees I paid to check my bag, and it was great that I connected through Charlotte and had to run a half mile across the airport just to make my connecting flight." Like people don't say that because. It's crummy, and they don't like it.
1: I don't know, Ganesh. I mean, if the market says that it's efficient to have your door plug blow out at sixteen thousand feet, who am I to argue with the invisible hand? Like, uh, I know better.
2: Uh, Well, I think I think you all do uh, (laughs) know better. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Like, you know, part of the whole point is the the model of the market is is you know not working here. This is not how it works, and um, and we see that every day. And I think that's that's partly what's working for, for people who want change here. You know, The other thing that gives me hope in this area is a lot of the things that are problems have just huge and broad bases of people who could support them. You know, The people who are miserable about small seats are Republicans, they're Democrats, they're old, they're young, they're of every yep. race, they live in every part of the country. The people who are irritated about losing service in cities, they live in cities. Toledo, St. Louis, Cincinnati. They also live in really small places in rural areas. They live in states like Wyoming and Cheyenne, which, you know, Cheyenne actually guarantees the revenue to one of the airlines, which is a fancy way of saying like they pay the airline if the airline doesn't make enough money off of their route. And when you talk to some of these small places, the way they talk about it is like it's a shakedown. You know, it's a gun to the head saying, we're going to destroy your city by leaving unless you pay us. Uh, And so guarantee that we make enough money off your route or else we won't be here anymore. And, you know, those are people who are not living in the biggest places uh, and and they're all over the country. And so, you know, I think there's there's a potential real opportunity for something that would be very popular. Um, Of course, you know, the airlines are going to fight back big time. But I think the way we make changes, we start talking about these things now and hopefully in the worst case, if there's another big crisis and the airlines aren't prepared and they come running to Congress asking for yet another bailout, at that point, we say enough is enough. And there's actually the coalition to do something about it.
1: You know, it's funny, would the incumbents, I mean, at the time of deregulation, a lot of airlines didn't want it. Uh, they, they had, you know, decades of a stable, profitable industry. Wor- uh, regulation worked for them. You'd think there might be some incumbents now who might See the advantages, maybe
2: I think I think a lot's changed since then. And and part of it is a kind of status quo bias. But you know, part of it today is also, you know, we haven't talked much about this, but you know, the dirty little secret is that the big airlines don't really compete with each other either. And so we also all pay higher prices because of that. And you know, there's different components yes. of that. But economists have shown that, you know, in part because the biggest airlines have common shareholders. Uh, including some big ones that uh, they really have no incentive to compete on price, and the real price competition really only comes in when you get someone like, you know, Spirit, uh, one of these ultra-low-cost carriers jumping into the mix. But when it's just the bigs who are serving the same cities, let's call it that, and you know they don't really compete, even though they're serving the same places, um, and so you pay higher prices there too.
0: So, you know, one of the things that I think the issues you raise are extensible to some other industries too, aren't they? Yeah, it's not just the airlines. Yeah, that's Uh, right. Obviously, telecommunications has been a big problem. Obviously, you know the the lack of broadband outside of major cities is a great example of exactly the same problem, right?
1: The 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 trucking industry was like the pilot for uh, airline deregulation, and that has been.
0: You know, terrible and what you know, what what's happening to the healthcare system? You know, all of the there are these big industries that people rely on, where if you let the private equity guys have their way, you'll have one big player serving twenty five percent of the country, and get, getting outrageous returns on capital, and that's it.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's it's a big problem, and I, and I think you know when you look at it. The kind of industry, some of the industries that were regulated with similar models to airlines—not exactly the same because they're all a little bit different—but but similar kind of principles: railroads, trucking, maritime shipping um, in the transportation sector. You know, telecommunications was another one. Energy, you know, pipelines and electricity, another category. Banking, right. another category. And honestly, when you look at these industries, these sectors. Um, These are not sectors that you would say are doing awesome right now in their service to the public. You know, just think about all the supply chain problems and issues we've seen in maritime and rail in the last, you know, five years through COVID. Um, Just think about the energy grid problems that we have. And it's, you know, Texas, but it's also California over many decades. It's a lot of different places. You know, as we said, broadband access in rural places has not been stellar, to put it mildly. Banking, you know, it's not like we haven't had major financial crashes uh, a couple times in the last, uh, you know, 15 years, including bank failures just a year ago. So, you know, we have a lot of different places where this kind of model actually worked to create stable, reliable, basic infrastructure on foundational things that apply to lots of other sectors of the economy and that are basic inputs communications, energy, transportation. Finance, like these are basic inputs into tons of businesses. And these are sectors that aren't working and part of that story is a story of deregulation in these areas um, that has made them all more fragile, that has increased risk, and that has made them you know, less useful for serving the public. And I think part of our challenge today is both admitting that, recognizing it, seeing the facts that it actually exist on the ground, which is that these are not industries that are working, And then deciding that we have to do something about it. And the good thing is, we actually have a playbook. Like we know how to fix this. It's not a totally new challenge. We know how to do it. You know, we just have to start building the movement to do it. I love it. Okay,
1: should we get to the final
2: question? Since I think
1: we've pretty much covered the benevolent dictator. Go ahead, Nick. Why do you do this
2: work? Ooh, good question. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons. I guess there's a, a how far back in like bio- biography or psychoanalysis do you go? <laughs> um, but let me give you the, a not too far back version, which is, you know, I think that we as a country have extraordinary freedoms and opportunities and abilities, and we've created a atmosphere and, a, and an ecosystem here that, you know, while it's never been perfect um, and never will be perfect, to be fair, nothing is, has really just been this extraordinary place for so many people. And that's why people want to come here. It's why we're a great example for so many things. It's why we're innovative. And part of continuing that project of making a country better, of making it have all these opportunities and be a place where there's freedom and innovation and opportunity and growth is having policies that actually do that. And so, for me, public policy and, and working in these areas—and I work in a lot of different areas of public policy—you know, really comes down to to that. And um, you know, I think of it as, you know, the American dream is not just uh, not just the dream for each of us to have a little bit of better life, but also that our country is better and that other people can have that too. And so, that that's it for me. It's it's partly the dream of a of a continued and better America, in addition to a better life for for all of the people here.
0: Thank you for your service. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Well, Ganesh, we, we'll be watching this uh, closely. I think it's a really, you know, it's a really interesting problem to try to crack. But it is analogous to so many of the other problems that the country faces right now too. And you know, just the consequence of fifty years of neoliberal ideological fervor, uh, and you know, we're paying the price for a lot of that today. So. Hopefully we can make it better.
1: I want you to know, Ganesh, I was sorry to miss you when you were in Seattle, but uh, Paul uh, gave me uh, a book that you signed. And so I made a point in December over the holidays, I was doing some flying of reading it in the airport and on the plane. So
2: I appreciate uh, that.
1: You were my, (laughs) my, you made, you made flying just a little bit less miserable.
2: Excellent. Well, I'm glad.
1: I'm glad. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, buddy. It's great to talk to you as always. Thank you all. Great to be here. The thing about that conversation and and Ganesha's book is how much it reminded me how backwards we've gotten the economy in the sense that You know, we used to believe that the purpose of markets was to serve the society. Mm -hmm. And then we decided that the purpose of society was to serve markets. (laughs) Like we really should be okay with an industry devoted to transportation that just decides that it's too much trouble or too expensive to transport people in non-optimal places. And that, well, I mean, that's just the market. And if those people want to go someplace, they should move to a place where there are transportation choices. You know, I just think that as Americans, we have so habituated ourselves to that thought process, to being like, well, I mean, you know, of course, there's not going to be a hospital in your smaller city. If you if you want healthcare, move care, move to San Francisco or New York. We just have kind of brainwashed ourselves into thinking that, well, if it's not, if it's not capital efficient, then well, what, why in the world would you would you do it? And it's just it's just so backwards from how we should think about it. And why, I think, raising this issue around airlines is so timely and uh, relevant. You know, because it's everywhere.
1: It's also, by the way, not consistent with the American tradition. And Ganesh goes into this in his book, but there was a long. American tradition of regulated capitalism—that is what we had, (laughs) partially, you know, starting in the 19th century, but certainly, you know, picking up a lot through the New Deal and into the 1970s. uh, But it was throughout our history. I mean, the post office, which he brings up as an example, we had that was that was a public good. And yeah. there were all types of things that were inefficient about it. The fact that periodicals, uh, you know, we still have this remnant of it, media mail. Uh, they It was cheaper to send a newspaper uh, 500 miles than it was to send a letter down the street. We subsidized shipping newspapers around because the founders understood that a free press was so integral to maintaining a functional right. democracy. And now, of course,
0: right. <laughs> we barely we have, don't newspapers. Even have newspapers anymore. Yeah. Right.
1: It, yeah. it was, you know, it's one of the things that de Tocqueville remarks upon in Democracy in America uh, that you'd go to some little, you know, rural town and everybody's reading multiple newspapers that are arriving in the mail from all over the country and debating right. what they're reading in these newspapers in the mid 19th century. And so this is there's a long tradition not just in you know socialist europe but here in the united states that's how we ran shipping that's we right. ran railroads we ran trucking we we ran the airline industry we ran telecommunications utilities etc and uh it worked it worked w- really yeah. well it created the the, the largest and uh, most affluent and most stable middle class the world has ever known. It helped build us into the greatest industrial, military, political, economic, and cultural power in the United States. And, you know, since the late 1970s, since the onset of the neoliberal era, you know, we've pissed it all away, Nick. That's what we've done. And We've made our lives so much more miserable than they have to be. And the other thing I want to point out is that, you know, when we talk about re-regulating, you know, as Ganesh says, it won't look like what we had before deregulation. But when we talk about re-regulating the industry to some extent, uh, this idea that it produces inefficiencies, that it'll be too costly, it allegedly distort the market and all that, that's That's just bullshit. That's not the way markets work. We've talked about this, Nick. The market is an evolutionary system. And when you do something like uh, uh, raise the minimum wage or impose some regulations on the airline industry, uh, all you're doing is changing the fitness landscape, The the things that are necessary for a business to thrive and turn a profit and the great thing about the market is it is incredibly innovative that is the benefit of market economies the innovation and the industry will figure out how to make a profit in a slightly more regulated environment than the one they're in now and uh who knows look over the long run it was more profitable before deregulation than it has been after
0: yeah At a minimum, I'd like to get to a spot where we don't have to throw another $50 billion at this idiotic industry during the next downturn because they took all of their profits and and rather than putting them on the balance sheet for a rainy day, sent them to their shareholders and their executives.
1: Even now, as they're carrying tens of billions of dollars of debt, they're doing stock buybacks and dividends, so uh, the various airlines. And so they're leaving themselves... Uh, vulnerable to another downturn, and uh, but who cares if you're just going to get the uh, bailouts? I think that if you do stock buybacks, uh, when things go bad, your shareholders should have to do stock givebacks.
0: <laughs> I agree, hundred percent, hundred percent. Make the shareholders pay for it. Anyway, a hundred percent.
1: Anyway, Nick, um, uh, enjoy your uh, your comfy private jet, and uh, I will. And uh, meanwhile, the rest of us will work to uh, make flying a little less miserable. Again, the book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. It's a short book that really eye-opening. If you think that uh, flying is cheaper because of deregulation, you're in for a surprise. Uh, You can buy it anywhere, your local independent bookstore or that big online monopolist if that's what's most convenient for you.